This podcast is for general educational and entertainment purposes only and should not be considered medical, practice management, legal, investment, or other professional advice. No one should act or refrain from acting based on this podcast without obtaining appropriate professional advice. In traditional um, fee-for-service and traditional contracting, you know, the focus is all on increments of care and units of cost. It isn't about... um, you know, how do we take care of the whole patient? That's not how the negotiations go. They're focused literally on units of cost and the members, the patients never come up. They absolutely never come up. Um, and these models are about, you know, it, uh, it's a complete rethink. I, I think of um, the value-based care models as um, sort of giving us a profound opportunity to rethink what is healthcare? What really has an impact on on patients' outcomes? And who do we need at the table to be able to understand how we get to those best outcomes? Welcome to Gastro Broadcast, presented by Gastrologic. I'm your host, Fred Rosenberg, and today I'm joined by Lily Burlstein, a nationally respected thought leader and the founder and CEO of B Collaborative, a company that assists healthcare stakeholders transition from fee-for-service to value-based care. For nearly a decade, Lily was the director of specialty care value-based models at Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield of New Jersey. Under her leadership, she constructed the largest, most progressive, and most collaborative programs for commercially insured patients. She developed episodes of care programs in orthopedics, OBGYN oncology, and of course, gastroenterology. Lily has been a strong advocate of the triple aim of healthcare and has been spectacularly successful at cultivating collaborative relationships between providers and payers. And I'm glad she's here today to share her thoughts with us. Lily, welcome to Gastro Broadcast. Thank you so much, Fred. Thank you for having me. We're excited to talk to you today. Tell us a little bit about your career trajectory and your interest in value-based care. Uh, you know, it's funny when I think about my career trajectory, um, I, I started, I have a public health background and I started my career doing work around HIV discrimination and domestic violence. And I think nobody is more surprised than I am that I wound up working um, on the payer side for 20 some odd years. But there you have it. Um, I, I did spend 10 years at what is now Northwell Health before I landed on the payer side. Um, and then I spent about 20 years, as I said, working um, at a variety of payers. I worked for a hip health plan in New York, which became Emblem. I spent a few years at United Healthcare, and then I spent uh, the last seven or so years working um, at Horizon. And really, in um, in every case, from the moment I got to the health plan side, um, my perspective was a little bit different than um, than most of the others who were there, and it a, a lot of what went on didn't really it didn't really compute for me. I didn't understand how uh, business people were writing contracts that didn't have or weren't informed by. Uh, the docs and the clinicians. And I saw clinicians who were um, doing work that they were contracted for, but had no information about what was actually in the contract. And so for many years, long before value-based care was sort of a, a fashionable uh, term or even something that we, you know, we, we talked about, um, the work that I did really revolved around um, sort of choreographing a dance, if you will, between payers uh, and their um, the, the business side of the house and the clinical side of the house, and between the payer and our, our provider partners. Um, 
And so um, I guess the most relevant work to what we're talking about today is um, what happened when I got to Horizon and I was brought in to really build their episodes of care and specialty care value-based models program. And I I was thrilled. I was absolutely thrilled about it because it sort of brought my um, public health background and my payer experiences together. Um, And so when I got there, uh, Horizon was just coming out of a very small pilot um, in episodes around hip and knee replacement. There were maybe 1,100 members who had gone through those episodes over the the prior three years. I wanted to look at um, multiple specialties. And then within a specialty, I wanted to look at different kinds of uh, episodes. So procedural, chronic, acute care, and test the model and see see how it worked. And so um, one of the ways that I grew that program um, and learned a lot was I would run around the country all the time, uh, more virtually today than uh, in the past. It used to be literally and just talk to people and listen to people and share information about what were the challenges you know we were facing uh, what were the successes we were experiencing and i think i think lots of people thought they were learning from me but i was really learning you know every single time i went out and talked to somebody and i would bring back the very best things that i heard uh, and try to work them into to our program always trying to figure out how do we build something that's clinically meaningful but that we as the payer can actually also administer. And that last part is really important because if it can't be administered, it it doesn't matter how meaningful it is. Nobody will get it. To me, one of the proudest um, achievements of that, uh, that whole sort of set of work was really not only that we achieved all the pillars of the triple aim, but we also changed the spirit of the relationship between the payer and the provider. Um, many of our providers looked to me and to my team as trusted advisors, and I, I just felt so privileged by that and so thrilled that we had been able to really change the culture to create one of um, trustworthiness and uh, that allowed us to really partner and collaborate in meaningful ways. And so in uh, 2019, middle of 2019, I left Horizon, which was very bittersweet for me because I loved them and I loved the work. But I left because I really um, wanted to continue to um, progress the move from fee-for-service to fee-for-value at a more national level. And I thought, um, you know, we really need, we don't have a movement if the payers don't come in. And I thought, you know, I have a kind of a unique credibility among payers in some ways because I am one of them. And so I started... um, be collaborative, which is which is my company, and I, as you said, Fred, and thank you for that lovely introduction, um, with a variety of stakeholders across the healthcare continuum, really to um, help progress the move, uh, to help express the value that each stakeholder brings to the table, and understand how to leverage that and how to how to create models that again are clinically meaningful and also can be administered by our our payer partners. Thanks, Lily. One of the things that's been interesting to me, for, for most gastroenterologists around the country, the relationship with the payer is one of um, a kind of a one-way street. The payer calls the shots. Uh, every once in a while, we get a letter saying your rates are going down and there's not much we can do about it. And uh, hearing from our colleagues in New Jersey, the relationship that you carefully built with them over time um, allowed them to really collaborate with you in a way that was so unique. Um, How did you 
think about that? How did you uh, captivate them and, and bring them into the orbit of really collaborating in an episode of CARE? Um, well, thank you for recognizing that. That's so nice to hear. Um, you know, I used to say things to my own team um, when we were going into a room with, with some of our docs. I would say, before we'd open the door, I would turn to them and say, okay, everybody, leave your need to know everything right here at the door. We're going in. We're not going in um, like in old time managed care where we would invite people in to discuss decisions we had already made. We were coming in to invite these folks in to actually help us build something. And again, I think um, because of my own background coming from a public health space, you know, I, I always build models, community based models, whatever they are, with the community that is affected, engaged in the design. Um, historically, you're right about how managed care has worked. Very often, the payer, um, you know, calls all the shots because the payer holds the money. But in fact, while the payer has very significant information to bring to the table in terms of the historical view of the utilization and the, the cost of care, um, it, it, they don't have the expertise to build the clinical pathways and um, they don't necessarily have the expertise to understand what the barriers are for, for their members in getting care or following the doctor's protocols. That really, but that, that expertise exists. It just hadn't been leveraged. Um, and so I would, um, you know, all of this work, I would say, is really um, one of the reasons that it takes so long is it really requires a complete culture change. Fred, what you talk about, um, the way that payers and providers interact is sort of a, a generous, I think, description of how they typically interact. I think more often, um, you know, uh, everybody comes to the table with their dukes up and everybody's mad and nobody trusts each other. And it's really that that we have had to and still have to in, in you know, as we move through this, sort of break that down and begin to um, collaborate and, and really collaborate in a way that um, allows each of us to listen to the perspective of the various partners at the table and understand what is it that they need to be able to do um, their job most successfully and to agree on um, uh, goals for the, um, for, the, for the whole program. In traditional um, fee-for-service and traditional contracting, you know, the focus is all on increments of care and units of cost. It isn't about um, you know, how do we take care of the whole patient? That's not how the negotiations go. They're focused literally on units of cost and the members, the patients never come up. They absolutely never come up. Um, and these models are about, you know, it, uh, it's a complete rethink. I, I think of um, the value-based care models as um, sort of giving us a profound opportunity to rethink what is healthcare? What really has an impact on, on patients' outcomes? And who do we need at the table to be able to understand how we get to those best outcomes? Um, and sometimes it's not just a payer and a provider. It may be some folks who are you know, not traditionally considered covered uh, benefits and others. Um, but it really, you know, I, some, one time I it was giving a, a, a talk somewhere and they had a DJ and I had the DJ play Aretha Franklin's R-E-S-P-E-C-T at the end of it because I thought this is really what it's about. It's about showing each other respect and um, 
you know, it's been sorely lacking in our industry. So um, I am, I really am so delighted and so proud that we were able to make that change in New Jersey uh, so successfully. That's great. Hearing from the doctors in New Jersey, I, one of the things that came through um, from them was that they were so appreciative that that as, that as this program was rolled out, although value-based care is really thought of as taking risk, the risk was really taken off the table in the beginning. It was really an experiment. Let's see if population health and colonoscopy uh, makes sense for the population and makes sense for the payer and the provider. And and um, I think that really, from my view from the outside, really advanced the program and, and, and allowed the doctors to participate with the, with the insurance company. And I think that's really, that was the risk taking from my perspective. You know, Fred, I am, I'm so glad you asked about this because you, you probably know I am a huge advocate of um, building these models, changing the paradigm, changing the culture, and not shifting the risk too quickly. When uh, in a no risk model, and I, I do um, uh, very much promote the idea of starting with retrospective models that only have an upside for providers. And so, just to make sure everybody knows what I mean, you know, that's a model that sits on a fee for service chassis, allows the docs to continue to get paid in accordance with their fee for service contract. But in a, at a uh, point after whatever the measurement period is, uh, there's a retrospective look back <clears throat> at the utilization and the cost of care and the quality uh, metrics that were established. And if they were all met, then uh, savings are shared so that the docs have an opportunity to increase their revenue there. The thing that's really important to understand, particularly for my payer friends, is that they're not at any more risk. The, the payers are not at any more risk when they create these models, right? The, the providers do not suddenly start performing more poorly simply because you've given them an opportunity to earn more money. It, it doesn't make sense, it doesn't work that way. And what happens is precisely what you said, Fred, it provides an opportunity, it levels the playing field. Um, you know, docs around the country are, they're fearful of value-based care models, right? Because they, many of them have gotten put into risk-based models too quickly. They're afraid they're gonna lose their opportunity to uh, uh, make the clinical decisions about their patients. They're afraid they're not gonna be able to feed their families, you know, or, or continue to uh, live the lifestyles that they live. And when you, when you create, and, and when you have that kind of fear, it's very difficult um, to sort of change the culture and create any sense of trust. When you take the, um, the risk piece off the table, and it's really just about let's work together, you're still gonna get paid. And if we collectively do better, there's an opportunity to earn more money. It, I had another doc say to me, Lily, it's like you taught us to go to school for free. You allowed us to go to school for free. And, um, and I like that expression too, uh, but it, it, it wasn't really free. It was, you know, certainly um, it was an investment of time that, it, that pays off so well. Um, and I kept saying to my, my senior management when I was at Horizon, you know, let's just wait because they're, we're, we're, we're teaching them. They're studying the data and they're figuring out how to address the variations in care and cost of care. And once they understand who the best partners are, what what it is that really needs to be addressed, because before this, they've never seen longitudinal data. They've only ever seen the data for their own claims. Now they can see what's happening to their patients as they move through the continuum. And um, 
And soon I said, they'll come knocking at our door saying, we're ready to take on risk because that will certainly be a bigger opportunity for them as well. And that's precisely what happened. You know, we spent, um, I don't know, three or four years in no risk models. And believe me, you know, that's not, um, that's not a gift that a payer is giving to the, the provider either, right? It's, there's tremendous opportunity um, for uh, improved outcomes and uh, tens of millions of dollars in that time in savings. Thank you. The the, the two areas of, of GI service of services that gastroenterologists provide are that, that produce the greatest costs are colon cancer screening and chronic diseases such as such as inflammatory bowel disease. And they they differ widely in that colon cancer screening is very predictable. The the outcomes, the risks um, are easily definable, whereas in inflammatory bowel disease, there's such a great degree of variability, uh, both in outcomes, in, in patient, um, uh, how the patient views their illness, you know, how many trips to the ER and all that. Um, is it more challenging to develop a risk-based program uh, in areas uh, where there's so much variability? Yes, it is, absolutely. But... Um but I love the complicated stuff. And, um, you know, we, so I've built models that are procedural like colonoscopy and, and those are sort of, in some ways, those are like starter episodes, right? They're nice because they, the continuum isn't that big and the levers are not that many, right? Um, in, in chronic conditions, which by the way, as I move around the country, um, I and talk to payers more and more. I hear uh, tremendous concern around how to manage their patients who have um, chronic conditions. Very difficult for the health plans to wrap their arms around. And in my view, um, are among those who have been the most adversely affected by fee-for-service, right? Many of those who have IBD, for example, have multiple comorbidities um, and need to be treated by um, different kinds of docs. And in the fee-for-service model, there's nothing that really um, encourages, incentivizes, promotes team-based care. And so very often docs are working without the knowledge of what their other colleagues are doing to or for a patient, and the patient is sort of on their own to navigate the complex, you know, labyrinth that is is healthcare, often resulting in sort of less than optimal outcomes, visits to the ER, and um, uh, you know, uh, duplicative services, etc. And so, um, so that said, it, it is more difficult, but it can be done, and I, um, it can be done using the exact same kinds of. Um, criteria and discipline that we use to build a procedural episode. And so it's critically important to identify who are the patients who qualify? Is it based on a diagnosis? Is it based on some you know, diagnostic procedure? Um, what are the goals? And um, in terms of the outcomes, that's where we really look to, uh, if this is done um, thoughtfully and, and correctly, in my view, we look to the physicians to say to us, how, how do we know when we're successful here? How, how will we know these patients are um, uh, are doing well? Um, and, uh, you know, I am one of those who thinks we can sort of build an episode around anything. Um, but the truth of the matter is, I think my own thinking evolves also, and I think um, I've come to think that the specialty care medical home model is is really a more appropriate model for chronic conditions than an episode, right? Um, in specialty care, where we begin is, you know, everybody has something, 
they have some reason and we, we um, stratify the population into groups that are clinically similar. So either they're having a colonoscopy or they have a diagnosis of IBD, something like that. And so the episode model is, a, is not a pop health model. It's a much more precision-based um, uh, model of care. The specialty care medical home model, I view as a bit of a hybrid. So it's a medical home in that it's, um, it's sort of managed in, the, in a very similar way to a PCMH model. Um, and except that the PCP is not at the helm, it's the specialist who has um, responsibility for the primary care diagnosis. So in this case, the GI doc. And it allows us to then create team-based care um, in an ongoing manner for uh, individuals and collaborate all of the care among all of their various providers, not just for one period of time, but um, for an ongoing, uh, uh, in an ongoing basis. Um, so it's so that's the model that I, I have begun to really uh, look at and work on with a variety of stakeholders to build. Is, is the is the specialty medical home um, for gastroenterologists something that can independent gastro gastroenterology has the bandwidth to create, or is this something that will unfortunately devolve to hospital-based systems? No, I don't think so. And and really, most of the work that I've done, Fred, I think you know, has been with independent practices. And um, the, I think the beauty of it is you don't need, it doesn't need to be a hospital-based practice at all. And um, it's, it's really more about finding partners who are um, motivated, like, and this, this goes for anything in, in value-based care, I think, you know, making sure you're talking to the right people, people who understand, uh, and can, um, look at the whole picture as opposed to just one piece of it and who can focus on not just the care that, that they themselves are rendering, but all of the care that's being rendered, um, uh, to the patient. And so, I, th I don't think it. I don't think size matters in this case. I think that. Um, <laughs> sorry, I think that what really matters is um, is the commitment on the part of the practice and who the partners are they identify, and that they're able to come together, listen to each other, understand what the full scope of uh, care that is required by a patient, which, by the way, may require care that falls outside of the medical the strict medical community, right? It may, it may include things like transportation. It may include things like mindfulness. You know, if we think about um, fee-for-service, and I use this example a lot, um, you know, that none of the plans, um, certainly that I'm aware of, would pay to have one of their commercially insured members take an Uber to get to the doctor. It's an, you know, it's not a covered benefit, it's an incremental cost of care, and the answer is, is generally no. When we start to think about value-based care, the shift now goes from increments of care to outcomes. And getting a patient to the doctor often has a pretty big impact on their outcome. And so we start to see things like Uber and Lyft, you know, becoming part of the continuum. We start to see things like food security. You know, we've begun to see a lot of plans around the country addressing housing, uh, you know, Kaiser Permanente, you know, buying housing and um, HCSC teaming up with Feeding America, um, Horizon building, um, you know, low back pain episodes that include um, yoga therapy. So I think it um, it's really about finding partners who are able to think beyond the walls of their own practice and, and really um, 
work to understand what is it that, that really impacts a patient's care and their outcomes in the long run. I'm glad you raised that last point. Uh, we all want to achieve more equity in all aspects of our society, including healthcare. And it's great to see um, insurance plans taking some of that initiative. Uh, unfortunately, most of the inequity in our healthcare occurs in people who have poor access to health insurance. And um, do you see ways we can motivate the, the federal government and the state governments to think about expanding the range of services as part of the total health care package? You know, I do. I think, you know, um, I, I'm in regular communication with Chris Ritter and others at, at CMS around the um, bundle payment care improvement initiatives and the um, BPCIA models. And they're so thoughtful about thinking around how, how to build models that actually will improve outcomes. Their job is much harder than uh, somebody who's working in one state. Um, but I think I think they are thinking about it. And I think at the state levels in Medicaid, in many ways, they're more progressive than some of the commercial plans have been um, historically, just in terms of what, what services have been provided for um, Medicaid members. It's the connectivity and the focus um, sort of uh, surrounding the patient the integration of that, I think that really needs to be improved. And I think we will, uh, we are starting to see more of that, um, I think, in these days as we're moving forward. Thank you. What developments do you see in the near term and long term for both healthcare financing and in risk taking? I think, um, you know, I think there's a lot of things happening. I think in terms of risk taking, we've seen a lot of movement over this last decade in um, maybe not as much as, as many would like, but we have seen a lot of movement in um, uh, going moving from fee-for-service to value-based care. And I think we will now begin to see many of those who have been in these retrospective upside-only models will now do very well as they move into the risk-based models. They understand the data, they understand who are their partners, and so we're, I'm already seeing more and more providers coming in and, and going to uh, payers to say, you know, we understand this now and we're ready to take on, on risk. I also um, think we will see um, some aggregators uh, coming more and more into the space who will help some of the much smaller practices who might not have uh, enough of a presence with any payer for it to make sense for them uh, to come in on their own. They don't have a big enough uh, volume. And so I think we'll start to see practice aggregators come in to group practices together to work together to, to be in these models. Um, and in terms of, you know, it's interesting in terms of uh, how they get financed, you know, there's it, it, there's a lot of moving parts now. When we first started to build value-based care models, we built, um, they were built in silos, kind of, right? We built the primary care models as PCMHs, we built ACOs, and we built episodes of care. And if there was some overlap, if a, an individual was attributed to a PCP, a PCMH, and also in an episode, we didn't really tend to worry about it too much. It was very early. It didn't happen a lot. But it happens a lot now, and now we're sort of in that um, place where we're going to start to see the models coming together to um, form that very elusive um, medical neighborhood. Thank you, Lily. You know, um, for, too, for far too long, the healthcare world of providers, uh, payers, and patients 
has had, for there to be winners, there had to be losers. And I think you've shown us how there are ways to create a, a healthcare delivery system where everyone can be a winner. Um, I'm thinking that many of our listeners would like to learn more about how you can help them begin this journey. Can you tell our listeners how they can learn more about Be Collaborative and how to get in touch with you? Oh, that's so nice of you, Fred. Thank you. So, you know, when I started this company in July of 2019, I had the incredible good fortune to be so busy right away that I, I do not yet have a website up, but it is in process. Um, but my, I'm happy to provide my contact information. Um, and so to email me is lgrillstein at bcollaborative.com. So it's B-C-O-L-L-A-B-O-R-A-T-I-V-E.com. Thank you very much. It's been great talking to you and learning a lot today. Thank you so much much. for having me, Fred. Wonderful. Thank you for listening to the Gastro Broadcast. Find new episodes through Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast fix. For information about our hosts, guests, and supporters, visit www.gastrobroadcast.com. Produced by Steadfast Collaborative.